Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Bible is Isaiah 57. While you're doing that, we're going to take a very brief look back at chapter 56 for a very specific purpose. If you were with us when we began the book of Isaiah, one of the remarkable things about the book of Isaiah is it really is kind of a picture of the entirety of the Bible in miniature. And so as we have come to the book of Consolation, this part of Isaiah that really Uh, points us towards New Testament truths. We just finished in chapter 52 and 53 this incredible gospel message where we see the Savior, we see the one who will die for our sins, we see what he will do to bring about the reality of our salvation. It's interesting that now we spend a little bit of time in what would be the same uh, basic Truths that are taught in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians. We're we're going to get a a little bit of Christian living 101. We're going to see that Isaiah the prophet looks into the future and sees this redemptive plan for Israel. And we'll get to what would be the, 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 really the book of Revelation, if you will, uh, of the book of Isaiah as we get to chapter 60 to 66 towards the end. But before we get there, Isaiah is going to deal with injustice, sin. And in order to not be heavy, we've all come to be refreshed. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to remember that all the truths that are in Scripture are yes and amen to those who love him. And so sometimes there are truths that we need to hear. Maybe they're not for you tonight, but they may well be for you to speak to someone else. Or you may be challenged on a truth. You you may be asked, well, what is your opinion uh, about recreational use of alcohol? Or what is your opinion uh, about abortion? You see, there are some in the church today that thinks God doesn't care about these things. God not only does care about these things, he's always had exactly the same opinion about them. And so, as we might expect, God being consistent with his character and with his nature... Uh, with his morality, which is the same as it was in Abraham's time, uh, God is going to give us a little bit of a, a, a preview, really, of how mankind ha- has ended up in a place to where uh, the church sometimes is confused on what God believes, what God thinks, when God has actually been very clear. And so if you join me, we'll pray. I'm going to take you back to verse 9 through 12 In chapter 57, very briefly before we move into, or chapter 57, before we move from chapter 56. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word, that you would strengthen us and encourage us, and God, that you would use this time for your glory and your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, before we get to 57, back to 56, for all the beasts of the field come to devour, and you beasts of the forest, the watchmen are blind. And and as you think on that, think of the church, and think of how in the Gospels we, we find this incredible picture of Jesus being this loving God 
who, who desires all men to, to be saved, who heals and touches and blesses people. But it's true that in the New Testament, we also find that God doesn't fail to speak the truth. And so as you skip down, it goes to verse 11, which we covered last time. They're greedy dogs, which never have enough. They're shepherds that cannot understand. And then notice what it says in the middle portion, before you get to the end of verse 11, they all look their own way. Everyone for his own gain, his own territory. And you, you might be able to slip into their this idea that we see in our world today of moral relevance. In other words, we just make it up as we go, whatever seems right to us. We, we just play by our own rules. We, we think that we can tell God what his standards are. Come, one says, I'll bring the wine. and We'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink, for tomorrow will be as today, only much more abundant. And so you can kind of get this idea that Isaiah, looking forward into time, but also looking at the troubles of his own day, uh, is, is talking about the way mankind perceives how God looks at us when we behave as we want to behave instead of how he has told us we should behave. God cares about what his kids do. We are to be doers of the word. We're not just to be hearers only deceiving ourselves. So when God says something, that is to us, in essence, a command. This is how I see it, says the Lord. And so God is going to deal with finality eventually on these issues of godliness and godlessness. Both of those things come into view in the New Testament, and both of them come into view here in the book of Isaiah. God lays out what he expects as far as godly behavior, and then he tells us, just in case we have a tendency to get off base, which we do, what it looks like if we're going the wrong direction. The book of Romans is chief in those lists where you can see what's really wrong. But when you look at the book of Colossians, the book of Galatians, and you study through those New Testament books, you find that very often there are opposing lists. There are things that we shouldn't do, things that we should put off, and things that we should put on, things we should be and things that we shouldn't be. And so to some degree, we get that in tonight in, in chapter 57. In verse 1, it begins this way. You see, because whether it's us or whether it's the Jewish people of old, if you claim to represent the Lord, then the world should be able to see godliness in us. One of the great difficulties that I have personally faced over this last year has been trying to navigate being what God wants us to be. Because everybody seems to have an opinion. So where do you think I go to figure out what that is? I go back to his word, amen? God, if you say it, that's good enough for me. We'll handle it that way. That's the easiest way to know all things. If God has spoken on the issue, then that should settle it for the believer. In other words, we have to live out our faith. It says there in verse 1, the righteous perishes and no man takes heart. You know what's really interesting? is when you think about all the people who are eulogized publicly, 
How often is it that they're highly unrighteous? In other words, there are people who have no moral character very often. There are people that the world idolizes, and yet when you look at their life, there's nothing godly about it. You can see that, of course, in much of the movie industry. And I'm in no means, by no means, making a, a too broad a generalization or painting with a broad brush here about everyone. But generally speaking, the people that are idolized in this world have very often very little character that you could say is godly. But when a pastor that's faithfully served his church for 50 years dies, it doesn't even make the newspaper. When the missionary dies on the mission field, you'll never hear about it. When some saint that spent their entire life tending to the cause of the needy when they die, nobody knows. And so that, that quality for us is one of a servant that we do what we do because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. Not because we'll be seen, not because we'll be glorified, not because anybody's going to write a book about it, but because we desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. Now, there are those commentators who look at this verse, and I happen to be a person who agrees with this assessment, that in a New Testament sense, this actually looks a whole lot like the rapture of the church to me. Because that's exactly what's going to eventually happen. God's going to say, enough's enough. I'm going to deal with evil. I'm going to be sending Jesus back. And before he does that, and before the tribulation starts, chapters, Revelation chapter 6 to 19, before that, those events, before the bowls are poured out, before the trumpets are sounded, before all these things happen on this earth that have never happened before, God is going to take the church out. He'll be merciful. Notice who's taken away. The righteous, the merciful. People are taken out for the sake to get away from that evil. And so it is very close to what we expect to happen uh, when the church is taken away, when the church is snatched out, when, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air, removed from what God is eventually going to have to do on this earth to get everyone's attention. In verse 2, it says, He shall enter into peace, shall rest in their beds, each one walking in uprightness. You, you see, it was the godless conduct of the leaders that caused Judah to fall into all of their calamities. Whether it was Assyria or Babylon, whether it would later be the Romans and the Greeks, it was always the leadership that caused the Jewish people to ultimately be where they were. They were, they were the types of prophets and priests who essentially would just say yes to everything. They didn't stand for anything. And so there's a little bit of sarcasm here. In essence, they're, they're being looked at kind of as, as watchmen who, who are no longer looking, exactly as Ezekiel uh, puts this. But in Lamentations chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it says this, because of the sins of her prophets and of the iniquities of her priests, who were shed in the midst, the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They defiled themselves with blood. No one would touch their garments. In other words, they got in trouble when the church stopped standing for righteousness. 
when you could no longer go to church and say, if I want truth, that's where I'm going to go. If I want an opinion, I can just simply turn on the news on my phone. If I want an idea, I can get that almost anywhere. In essence, the Lord wants us to be at peace. But we'll only actually be at peace when we're living lives that are pleasing to the Prince of Peace. So important for us to remember that, especially in our day and time. And that we need to have righteous leaders that will rule over us. You see, there is a cost to godlessness. And so when you think about this from that perspective, when we have an opportunity to cast a vote, when, when we get to join in in the selection of rulers who rule over us, God expects us in the polling place to put our values into those votes. To literally say, Lord, how would you have me vote for this person or vote for that bill or cast a vote for some you know, specific item of legislation that may be before us? And it is shocking to me sometimes when I talk to people in the church that they seem to somehow think that simply because God has given us secular government and he's given us the church, that there's no intersection between those two things. And while this shouldn't be a place of politics, it is a place of righteousness and it is a place of godliness. And so if godlessness creeps into our lives, it's going to affect everyone around us. And so the point here is this. Rebellious people often get exactly what they ask for. That's what happened to the nation Israel. As they began to ask for, you know, give us a king like our neighbors have. Or as we're going to see in this passage tonight, when they began to look at what the world around them had, and they began to basically want, lust for, covet the things of the world, and those things were not of God, then they ended up getting rulers that matched the way they thought. In essence, you could modernize it. The way they thought was the way they voted, and the way they voted is who they got to rule over them. Now, they weren't voting for kings, but in the sense, God looks at our hearts and says, if you're going to keep going that way, I'm going to give you rulers to match what you're thinking. That's why we need to take, it, take to heart what Romans 13 says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Because our biblical understanding is the way we ought to think of selecting leaders, rulers. They should be the most godly people that you can possibly vote for, possibly put in office. Where that often is best seen is how closely do those rulers align with true biblical morality, true biblical principle. And so make no mistake, you know, somebody said to me, you know, the world is it's just over. I actually said it today. The world as we know it is over. 
And I, I kindly, I think, said to them, I don't think that's true. I, I said, is the world a mess? And they said, well, yeah, absolutely. I said, how did it get that way? How is it that, that the world has gotten in the place that it is? Well, the world has had the opportunity to select for itself the rulers that rule over us. And that is true down to the level of our local politics. When you cry out for godless rulers, when you ask for certain people because you believe certain things, and those certain things do not match up with God's criteria, God often gives you what you ask for. Where does that touch us? Well, in the same way that it touched the children of Israel. Verse 3. Come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer, you harlot. The words here are kind of, they're kind of strong, huh? It's kind of like, mm. I don't want to use that in church. Well, it's found in God's word, and it's found there for a reason. You, you see, and this is nowhere more visible than the book of Hosea, as far as God was concerned, the reason to use the, the object lesson of marriage is that Israel was supposed to be married to God. There, there should be such a close relationship between Israel and God and the same one exists between Christ and the church. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. It's not the same relationship, but it's the same type of relationship. It's supposed to be godly, God-honoring, Christ-honoring. And so that is in view here. And basically what God is saying, come here, you sons of the sorceress, you sons of the drug dealer, drug user. The word that's used there is the same one that ultimately gets translated into Greek, pharmakia, which means drug usage. Someone whose mind is twisted and bent. Someone who goes after strange things. Offspring of the adulterer and of the harlot. And joining those two things together, basically it's saying the sexually immoral per person or the sexually immoral group of people who now seems to be in view. Why does he do that? Because during this time, the children of Israel, the people whom God called his chosen people, were going after these false gods of the Canaanites. The gods of the Assyrians, ultimately the gods of the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians. They would then pick up the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon. Every time a new God came on the horizon, they're just like, well, you know, that sounds a lot better than the one we currently got because he's like keeping us from doing all the things we want to do. They were worshiping the gods of the pagans, specifically Baal and Molech, Ashtaroth. Who were those gods? Whom do you ridicule? Verse 4 says, whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out your tongue? This is, this is like the children of Israel are saying, God, we know what you said, but nah, you know, stick out your tongue. 
make a face. Not, you know, like your kids do when they don't want to eat broccoli or something. It's like, yeah. Are you not children of transgression? Offspring of falsehood? Verse 5 in the Hebrew language is so pointed as to be so clear that you can't help but make a direct correlation between what's being said here and the, and the sin that ravages our nation today that is the sin of abortion. Inflaming yourselves with gods under every tree. In other words, becoming enraged with passion so that you forget who God is and you are sexually immoral with virtually anyone that will have you. Slaying the children in the valleys and under the clefts of rock. You see, we didn't invent the termination of a child's life for no reason. It's been going on for a long time. The real problem is, is we are a country that has now legalized it. We've somehow tried to sanitize it. And I recognize that there are probably some of you that may walk away from tonight's study offended. And if it's me, I'm sorry. If it's the truth, I'm not sorry. But we need to talk. Because in the last couple of weeks, I have gotten in excess of 100 emails that all kind of went the same place. And I have no idea why, so I'm going to clear that up tonight. Somehow, I guess because I didn't join in the Stop the Steal campaign, there are some people that think that I am anything but, or the Bible is anything but, pro-life. Let me tell you, not only am I pro-life, and not only is this church pro-life, God is pro-life. So let's look at what the Bible says about what Isaiah says here is clearly sin. Inflaming yourself with passion and then killing the children that come from that passion. Does that sound fairly close? And while I recognize that we might all be in some form of different understanding, I can tell you this, Molech is still very much alive. And in fact, if you were to travel to Israel and go to the Israel National History Museum, uh, you'll be able to find a little case, and in that case there are dozens of statues of Molech. Guess where they were found? In the city of David, Zion, God's holy hill, the place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the city of peace, Jerusalem. Most of the time, they are the same exact figure. The most elaborate ones are made out of brass. They have a fairly tall, skinny god with outstretched arms curled up. And the historical record is replete with how Molech was worshipped. 
Dodorus Seculus writing before the time of Christ, 90 to 30 B.C., gives this description of the Carthaginian fire god. There was in their city, this is a historical document, it's not found in the Bible, it's just simply giving the history of the time, the bronze image of Kronos extending his hands, palms up, sloping towards the ground, so that each of the children, when placed thereon, rolled down and fell into a gaping pit filled with fire. Plutarch, probably some of you actually have read his history. Writing in AD 46 to 127, he was the senior priest of the Oracle of Delphi. Gives this word picture. The whole area before the statue of Molech was filled with the loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries of the wailing children being sacrificed would not reach the ears of the people. One can readily see why Moses, why God writing through him, was so very specific about how children are to be viewed in the eyes of the Lord. And probably some of you are going, well, I would never think of that. I would never do something like that. And that's likely true. Most of you probably wouldn't. But God has an opinion. And God is not for abortion. He hates it. I'm being very direct and very clear tonight for a reason. Because I don't want anybody misconstruing what I'm saying. God is pro-life, period. And I believe that I can prove that to you tonight. And while I want to be very gracious and kind, and I want to begin by saying, if you yourself... Or if you know someone who's undergone an abortion, who's yielded to that pressure, the grace of God is sufficient for you and for them. And it is not the unpardonable sin. It can and will be forgiven if it's repented of and you ask God, So what I'm saying now has nothing to do with God's capacity, ability, or desire to forgive any and every sin. It has to do with how we as a church respond when somebody asks you, so, well, our, uh, you know, what do you think about abortion? I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what the Bible actually says because it's actually quite clear. And why I believe every Christian, every Christian, I don't care whether you call yourself a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, I believe that it is inconsistent with God's nature, his character, what his word says, for any believer to be anything other than pro-life. Let me tell you why. You see, because we actually have a modern 
Molech, if you were to read Romans chapter 1 and read through these lists of sins, at the end of that list, as you get to chapter, get to the end of the chapter, verses 18 onward, or at the very end, it begins to go through these, the sins that would be sexual immorality or sex with anyone that you desire to. Now, I hate to say this, but that is the world we live in. We live in a world where not even 50% of all people even bother to get married anymore. People have children, and we use phrases that turn my stomach when I hear them. Well, that's the baby daddy. No, that's the father of that child. God doesn't look at it that way. God looks at life as precious. And so there are some biblical arguments we need to consider. First among them, remember the Bible is intensely Judaic. It was largely written by Jews, for Jews, until the time of the Gentiles began in the time of Jesus. Beyond that, it's almost entirely, the whole Old Testament is Jewish. And so it has Jewish roots, and you cannot extract a biblical morality from the Jewish roots. That's why we call it a Judeo-Christian worldview. It is highly Judaized. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, Behold, you see, the reason the Bible doesn't talk about abortion is because it's unthinkable. It's completely inconsistent with the character of anyone who names the name of Christ. And it certainly was to the Jewish people. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's not a curse, not a burden. It isn't an accident. The fruit of the womb is a reward from the Lord, whether planned or unplanned. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth, and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but will speak of their enemies in the gate. In other words, you're going to be big on this earth if you got kids. From a Jewish perspective, kids were a blessing, they were from God. All kids, all kids, every child. A second thing, very clear in the scriptures, that it is God himself that actually opens and closes the womb. I'm being delicate here, but it's pretty clear. He is sovereign over conception. He is sovereign over over conception. And newsflash, human viewpoint, if you don't want children, don't have sex. It's pretty simple. I can tell you how many children you're going to have if you don't have sex with somebody. None. But we don't get to that place to where we pass along those truths. We make up something else. Well, you know, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can. If you're a believer, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to restrain you. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 13, 1, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn 
Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. That's another way of saying whatever is birthed. That's what that scene is. The dilation of the womb. The birth of a child. A third thing. Childlessness was seen as a curse. You all know some stories, don't you? Remember Abraham and Sarah? What was the curse that was upon them? No kids. Rachel and Leah, same thing. It was grief for generation after generation after generation. Children were never looked at as a burden. Even if they weren't planned, they were still a blessing. Now you have to understand, in our day and time, we live in, a, we live in an era where we call things like family planning a reality. Back then they didn't. There was no such thing. And so from God's perspective, he's looking at this purely from that angle. He's saying children come from God. And to not belabor it, a passage that you're very familiar with, Psalm 139, plainly declares the sanctity of all human life. As does Psalm 51. As does Genesis chapter 1, which, by the way, is exactly the same argument that you would, we would sit here and use. All of mankind was created in the image of God. There's no one who's ever born who isn't created in the image of God. And so verses 13 to 16 in Psalm 139, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together. Now why would David be speaking of his personhood and also at the same time say that he's in his mother's womb? He's got this understanding that from the womb, people are people. Human beings are human beings. It isn't a mass of tissue. It's not helpless protoplasm. It isn't a bunch of dividing cells. It's a person. Those lies that are being propagated and pushed on humankind right now are that it's not a child. Well, I hate to tell you this. From God's perspective, it absolutely is a child. The Bible declares it very clearly. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. In other words, while that child was developing in the womb, from God's perspective, God said, that is a child and I love it. It's created in my image. Woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my eyes and my unformed body. My days were ordained for me. They were written in your book before one of them came to be. Does that sound like a non-existent blob of protoplasm? Does it sound like a couple of cells that are joined together and beginning to divide? No, it doesn't. Just because you call something a fetus and you try and make it so that it does not have life does not make it so in the eyes of God. Bible doesn't speak of fetal tissue as biochemistry. It speaks of the fetus as a person. 
100% of the time when it touches on this subject. Verse 13, basically, God's the master craftsman of life. Skillfully rotting together this child. Seeing the unformed substance as a person. And in order that we don't belabor this, you see, this was the reason the children of Israel, one of them, a major one, they were about to go into captivity. They hadn't learned the lesson from the Assyrians. So here comes the Babylonians. And after them, the Medes. The Persians. The Greeks. The Romans. The Holocaust. You could just march through history and go, why, 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 Lord? Why? Because all human beings are created in the image of God. That is unbelievably clear in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And you can go there and you can read our, and watch our study through the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. God's image was perfectly implanted in humankind. It's man that messed that up. God still looks at us as created in the image of God. It's the reason racism is wrong. That's why racism is wrong. The same reason it's not okay to destroy human life that's a small child is the same reason it's not okay to take advantage of your neighbor whose skin color is different than yours. Church. Unborn babies and your neighbor who may have a different skin color are all made in the image of God. And we have to have that view in God's house. That's his perspective on all human beings. And in fact, so much so that the Bible plainly teaches that the soul is imparted to the child when it's still inside the mother's womb. That's how David could say, You saw me before I was. So when someone comes to you, well, what's your opinion? Well, what my opinion is, is God is intensely and forever pro-life. Pro-life. So powerful is that argument by the time God starts meeting out laws for the children of Israel to to actually stand on. In Exodus 21, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely and yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband as he imposes upon him. He shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, if there's no harm, there's no harm. But notice what happens. But if any harm follows, verse 23, you shall give a life For a life. What do you think that says? If a woman with child, if the baby dies, it's a life for a life. Why? Because the baby is a life. The child in the womb is a life. 
Then it goes on to say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn. In other words, God says, make it equivalent. But he first says, a life for a life. In other words, if you harmed some woman who was pregnant and that baby died, as far as the Bible is concerned, that was a capital offense. That was the Lex Talianus. That's what it was, that's what was called for. It's not talking about a miscarriage. It's talking about the deliberate injury of a child. And so I say all of this to say, God determines when life begins and God determines when life ends. And it is not for any man to determine either of those two things. God determines that. He left that in his purview. That's what the church should believe because that's what the Bible says. And so I pray that when someone asks you, I pray for those who've accosted me over the last couple of weeks, somehow believing that I think something else, that the Bible teaches something else, God is pro-life. And so the church, the Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Jesus-following church should value the sanctity of human life beginning in the womb. And so because of this, God speaks against them. What is now going to follow the whole rest of the chapter is God commenting on this subject. They had inflamed themselves with their idols under every green tree, slaying their children in the valleys and clefts of the rock. In other words, they had disregarded God's opinion, God's thoughts, God's way of thinking. And they had gone about things their own way. They said, ah, it's Yeah, we don't need to worry about that. One day the godless are going to be gone. God's going to take care of it. And so the whole rest of this chapter is God putting kind of the punctuation on this thought. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. There your lot even them to whom you have poured a drink offering. In other words, what they did is they would go down and they would grab stones from the stream and they would make little altars. Well, see, if you've offered a grain offering, should I receive comfort from these? (laughs) You're not going to receive comfort from following the God of this age. There will be no peace that comes to you because you've done what the world wants you to do. There will only be torment and there will only be trouble. On a lofty and high mountain, you have set your bed, even where you went up to offer sacrifice, and also behind closed doors and their posts. You have set up your remembrance. That's where those stones went. 
You know them as an Ebenezer stone. It was supposed to be where you remembered what the Lord did. In this case, it's you remembering where you did your sin. It's like, man, I just can't wait to get back to that bar. Can't wait to see that boyfriend, that girlfriend. Can't wait to get back together with them again into that relationship that I'm not supposed to be in. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. In other words, God's saying, you're supposed to be wedded to me, you're supposed to be chased before me, and instead, you're out with everybody else. These are powerful things, and I realize they're tough to hear. But sometimes the Bible tells us things that are tough to hear. And they're for our good. Ultimately, they become a blessing to us when we believe them and act on them and live them out and have gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed. You've made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where they saw your nudity. You see, sexual immorality has been around a very long time. And it has never been good. It's not as though this is something new but it is something that now has been enshrined in our way of life and is being accepted more and more and more and more every day. And it should not be in the church. It's still an anathema to God. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messenger afar off. In other words, you put your hope that the government would be okay with it. Well, you know, the governor said I could do it. The president said I could do it. Congress said I could do it. The court said I could do it. The messengers went afar off. Can I tell you something? If you want to look for somebody to give you permission to sin, you won't have to go very far. You'll be able to find somebody to agree with you on almost any area of sin, almost instantaneously. It's like, well, what do you think about you know me sleeping with my boyfriend and my girlfriend? You know, I know we're not married, but you know, it's like, well, how am I going to know? God said no for a reason. He said no for a reason. You give a part of you. When your body starts releasing oxytocin and you bond with that person, you give yourself over. You give a little bit of you away, and it's hard to overcome. It's not impossible. It's just hard, and God doesn't want you to live a hard life. He wants you to live a blessed life. He even descended into Sheol. He started looking to hell for your comfort. You know, when people go down the road of sin far enough, they eventually start looking into hell itself for their comfort. They just go all the way. They finally give up. Say, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. You were wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, and therefore you were not grieved. In other words, you enjoyed what you were doing. It was fun. Sin, though it is pleasurable for a season, 
your Bible plainly declares the end of it is death. Of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? It's not because I've held my peace from of old that you do not fear me. God has had the same exact opinion on these things for thousands of years. Thousands. Well, you come to our country in the 1960s, and we have the sexual revolution, or the sexual revulsion, if you just take a couple of word letters out of it. Where all of a sudden, we just throw our caution to the wind. You know what came right after the sexual revolution? No-fault divorce. You know what's happened ever since? Prayer went out of schools. God became a dirty word. Mankind slid into the abyss to where what is unseemly has become so normal that people think it's okay. Not my words, it's God's. This is what God's saying through Isaiah the prophet. What was the focus? That you do not fear God. Yikes. God forbid. I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. In other words, there's no righteousness in you. If I were to declare your righteousness, there wouldn't be any. How sad is it? These are God's people. Now just move it forward. 2,700 years. Can you imagine the Lord stepping into the church? And I'm not saying you, and I'm not saying here. But I'm saying in the world where the church is supposed to have influence of righteousness and be salt and light, the Lord steps into that church and says, I can't find any righteousness. There isn't any. And when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Oh my goodness. Now when God has to go that far to say, look, you're the ones with the idols stuffed under your bed, why don't you cry out to them? You've been doing it. You've been living it. You've been walking that direction. Let them help you, but the wind will carry them all away. The breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. And shall inherit my holy mountain. What God is saying is, you know what? The godless are going to have their day, but one day they're going to get blown away like chaff. There's going to be a day when God's no longer going to play this game. And so I pray for us, and I realize this is heavy. I do. And I realize I've spoken strongly. I understand that. But I don't think Isaiah preached this message going, well, you know, kind of sort of, it's like maybe God's okay, maybe he's not. No, it was a very strong message because these guys were about to go into captivity. They had been delivered from the Assyrians, but they didn't get it. Church. 
As soon as an ungodly king took the throne, the people went right back to their godless ways. You can't trust those pagan rulers. There are people right now rejoicing. I don't think God's rejoicing over our country right now. I think God is mourning over our country right now. And that's not a political statement. That's a biblical one. Because the country's a mess. And the church isn't standing for anything. I've been on this earth a while. And I've never seen so much of the church so occupied with stuff that doesn't matter. And not occupied with the things that do. And one shall say, verse 14, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In other words, God is near to those with a contrite heart. People who look at the problem and go, God, don't let me be part of the problem. For I will not contend forever. And here's the grace part. Hallelujah for the grace part at the end. Amen? I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. In other words, God tells us these things for a reason. He's instructing our spirits to say, don't let this be you. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and I struck him and I hid and was angry. Remember what we saw? For the iniquity of my people, he has hidden his face. God's going, I I want to save, I want to lead, my hand's not short so that I can't do it. But you've chosen another God. He went backsliding in the way of his heart. There's the issue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's what your heart takes in that ultimately the mind dwells on. When the mind dwells on it, that's what you do. That's what you become. It's always a heart issue. It's never that there isn't enough money or that there aren't enough people to get the job done. It's always the heart of man is the issue. That's why we believe that the only way is to save those who will be saved, to see their hearts transformed and their minds renewed. I've seen his ways and I will heal him and I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips and peace, peace to him who is afar off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Injustice, sin, Never works out. 
Well, you may get away with it for a while. It may be okay for a while. It may actually be fun for a while, at least in a physical sense or perhaps in some other mental way. You think, oh, this is great. But what God says is truth. And so we as his people are supposed to hear these words and say, God, this is what you have said. You're against the proud. You're against the greedy. I don't want to make those mistakes. I don't want God to look at my life and go, Jeff, I told you. Why did you do that? You had the opportunity to turn, but you didn't. That's why Ezekiel 18 says what it says. I do not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want wicked people to die, be destroyed by their sin. He wants them to repent and turn and change. And I pray that we are the bastion of truth that's willing to say with our very lives, this we believe, Lord, this we shall do. God, you said it. That's enough for me. I have no opinion but your opinion on these matters. And when the world says it's okay, if it's not okay with you, it's not okay. We take our cue from God. And if we do that, we have the peace. The people that don't are the ones that are tossed to and fro by the storm. They're the ones that are unstable. And for me, I don't want to be unstable. I don't want to be churned up with mud in my life. I want to have the peace that surpasses my own human understanding that guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus every moment of every day. It's the only way to live. And we can live that way when we do things God's way. That's the path to that. Let's live that way. Let's believe that way. Let's have God's opinion on what God says. And in doing so, let's have that peace and let's walk in it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll... We'll close in prayer. If after service you need prayer, we're going to have a team in our prayer room. And again, remember what I said. And it's not me, this is the Lord. There is always grace for the repentant person. There is always grace for the hearer that says, yes, Lord, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and I want to turn around. Would you help me? There's always grace. Don't leave here in some form of condemnation. Leave here with your burdens left here. Give them to the Lord. Just say, Lord, I've been struggling in this area. Maybe for some of you, it's been a lifetime. That can change tonight. That lifestyle that you've lived it can end right now. That is the God that we serve. He is able, and we are more than conquerors in him. Amen?
Don't take your burdens out those doors. Give those burdens to God tonight. And let him bless you. Love on you. Lavish love upon you because he does love you. He will never leave you. He won't forsake you. His promises are sure. They're yes and they are amen. Believe that. And then help other people to believe that. It's what we've got to do until he takes us home. Father, we thank you for these truths. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone online right now or someone who might watch this in the future or someone here tonight in this room and they are burdened down. The enemy has pressed in on them like a flood and they're overwhelmed in some area of their life and sin has crept in. God, tonight can be a night of freedom. It can be a night of rejoicing and release. And so, Lord, we ask you, by the power of your Spirit, to be the chain breaker and the way maker. The one who steps into our time and says, I got this for you. Lord, we need your help. We live in a rough world that hates us. And God, for some, maybe they're not sure they even know you. And I pray tonight would be for them that day of salvation. When they would just simply release these things to you and put their lives in your hands. By inviting you in as Savior and Lord, confessing their sin. Believing in who you are, that you died for them and were raised from the dead. And if we believe in you, we'll be raised with you. So God, we thank you for your word, even when it's strong, that your word is true. And so help us to walk in your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.